Hello, and welcome to the Energy Strong podcast presented by SPL. I'm Patrick Schauer. I'm joined once again by the director of ESG for SPL, Andrew Parker. How's it going, Andrew? Pretty good. How are you, Patrick? Doing well. Also joining us again is the CEO of Artemis Energy, Kat Galloway. Kat, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great today. Excited to have a, a discussion with Car Ingham. Lots of cool things to talk about regarding um, the economics of oil and gas and what's going on right now with our administration. Yeah, as Kat mentioned, we're going to be talking with Car Ingham today. Something a little bit different, we're going to be talking about energy economics, a little bit of a, a deviation from some of the other topics on the podcast, but we thought that it was a relevant topic given a lot of the conversations going on right now. So we hope that you enjoy the conversation with Carr coming up right after this. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but today's episode is brought to us by Bulwark FR. For over 50 years, Bulwark has served as the relentless protector of those who power the world. In that time, they have pioneered every breakthrough in flame-resistant apparel and tirelessly championed the workers of oil, gas, and electric utilities. Bulwark doesn't just make FR, they are FR. And now with their newfound freedom, they get to do it in a bigger, better, and bolder way. Learn more at www.bulwark.com. That's www.bulwark.com. And now back to the show. So over the Thanksgiving uh, dinner table last week, the topic of energy, of course, came up. And that's because it's important that we talk about these things with our family. And everyone's been listening to the Energy Strong podcast. And as we were talking, uh, we started discussing what's going on with oil prices. Uh, we know that oil prices are going up and we have seen the administration, the Biden administration, um, kind of talking about what we can do to fix the oil prices. Um, and as I was talking with my family, I said, well, you know, I, I'm an oil and gas person, but I am not, I know nothing about economics and oil pricing. So I decided, well, we need to have someone to come on the show who does know a little bit about that. So today on the show, I'd like to introduce Carr Ingham. He is a petroleum economist. Um, I've known him now for a couple of years. Um, he's also the executive vice president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. Carr, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kat. I'm, I'm honored by the invitation. I really am. Looking forward to it. Well, great. What we want to do today is have you give us some, some information about oil prices and what is going on out there. So maybe first of all, if you could give us a little introduction, tell us about your background and how you got into economics in the first place. Well, that's a longer story than I'll take the time to share with you today. I've been uh, been a practicing economist. Um, uh, it just reminds me of my ever-advancing years at this point since about 1996 or so. And so the original work that I did as an economist was regional metro stuff, mostly around Texas, setting up tracking devices for metro area economies, ways to track economic growth, ways to identify business cycles, periods of growth, uh, where the turning point points are in there, kind of business cycle analysis at the metro level. Well, one of the early places that I began to do this in the late 90s was in Midland, Odessa. 
And uh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you certainly realize this. You can't do general economic work in Midland, Odessa without kind of turning yourself into an oil and gas guy. And so I ended up creating a regional oil and gas activity index and the Alliance uh, caught wind of this. And so um, it was in the aftermath of that that this statewide organization uh, be, somehow became aware of this work and some talks that I had given around uh, the state and uh, asked me to do this for them. And so my relationship with them as an economist and as an energy oil and gas economist uh, has grown uh, uh, since then. Um, and as you suggested, I'm uh, now the Alliance's executive vice president. Well, great. So glad to have you here. So one of the things that happened over the Thanksgiving break was um, that that Biden decided to pull in a probe uh, to, to to do an FTC probe on oil prices, and and I'm pulling a quote here where he said, "I do not accept hardworking Americans paying more for gas because of anti-competitive or otherwise potentially illegal conduct." Um, so so Biden has come out and is is accusing the oil and gas industry of of doing something potentially illegal on our oil prices. Um, and so what I'd like to understand and what I would like our listeners to understand is if you could please give us kind of a, a general description of how oil pricing works. Um, I know it's very fundamental to you, but but for me, it, it, it takes a minute. So please break it down for us from a very basic level. How are oil prices set? Well, even those of us who, you know, have a background in this sort of thing, who went to economics school, who do this all day, every day. I mean, we're still surprised uh, fairly often, actually, at how markets uh, uh, seem to work. And uh, but in terms of oil pricing, it is it, it is actually uh, quite fundamental when it comes down to it. And, uh, you know, we tend to throw these terms around a lot. Non-economists who want to act like they're economists on any given day will just toss these terms around. But it truly is a function when push comes to shove of supply and demand. But it's global supply and demand. And. And, and occasionally you sort of need to throw in there maybe market expectations about what may be getting ready to occur that markets tend to adjust to, which means that players in the market, either producers or consumers, um, uh, uh, might be uh, adjusting towards. But even at that, there will be a reconciliation with just the market fundamentals at some point in time. So. Um, we have something of a domestic crude oil market that is tracked by a thing called West Texas Intermediate uh, Crude Oil. So that's kind of a domestic U.S. crude oil price. Uh, years and years ago, which is to say decades ago, it was kind of the ruling global oil price. And it's not so much now um, uh, because of the advancement of technology, uh, just because of the ability to move things around the globe. And so the so-called Brent price, which reflects crude oil pricing in other parts of the world, is uh, um, uh, maybe kind of the uh, the ruling global oil price. West Texas Intermediate still has a lot to do with uh, with our markets, and it's and it's really based on West Texas Intermediate pricing that U.S. crude oil produ producers get paid for a barrel of crude oil. Uh, but if you look at West Texas Intermediate crude oil prices and Brent crude oil prices over a long period of time, the trends in those will look very much the same. They may be a few dollars apart 
and at times that spread may be a little bigger than it is at other times but generally when one's going up the other's going up and when one is going down the other's going down it's not ever the case that Brent and West Texas intermediate crude oil prices move in different directions uh, for any length of time and so uh, so the trends are what they are I mean you're never gonna see $80 Brent and $50 West Texas Intermediate, you know, and you're not going to see one going up 20 bucks and the other going down by 20 bucks. So crude oil prices are generally set globally, and it is a function of what's being produced relative to what's being demanded, uh, as the market understands this, over, uh, over a, a given a period of time or at a point in time. And so the the, the thing that you're taught on about day two of economic school is that these two things are always doing their best to come into line with one another, supply and demand. And the way this is accomplished is through the price system. And the price system functions simply by the signals that are sent to it by the players, consumers, and producers. And so this is sort of where the mystery comes in. But again, I think it's a fabulous mystery. I mean, uh, we've been really well served by just, uh, by just a functioning free market economic system, by the ability of prices to move in generally unfettered ways, unfettered by government, unfettered by things that tend to introduce these artificial distortions into marketplaces. And so... Uh, when we talk about crude oil pricing, generally when crude, crude oil prices go up or down in any sort of sustained trend, it's because something is happening globally that affects these things. It's either a long period of global economic growth, uh, which always means higher energy demand, um, and the, the speed at which the market players can respond to these demands has a lot to do with this. Um, introduce a global pandemic and it just throws everything into uh, utter chaos. But uh, <laughs> but what looks like chaos to the rest of us is actually uh, the market doing what it does. It sends prices crashing because it doesn't need any more crude oil. It begins to bring prices back up again when when energy demand begins to recover. And we do need more crude oil than we got to during the low points of COVID. And so uh, so this is how this is how prices are set. Here's how prices are not set: by Exxon Mobil, by BP, by Shell, by ConocoPhillips, by any sizable, well-known company, telling the rest of the world what crude oil and therefore gasoline prices are going to be on any given day or any given week. The largest crude oil producer on the globe. Uh, is still referred to virtually entirely as a price taker and not a price maker. In other words, nobody who produces crude oil, even the largest producers on the planet, um, especially in our market system, get to say what the price of crude oil is on a given day. If they could, <laughs> do you mean to tell me uh, that when crude oil prices are 8 bucks a barrel or... 12 bucks a barrel or 50, whatever it is, something that's considerably lower than we have now, that they wouldn't want a higher price than that at that point in time. Well, why don't they give it? Why don't they just charge 50 bucks a barrel on a day where the market's handing everybody else 10 bucks a barrel? Well, that's because they can't. And so, uh, so this is a very common tale. I mean, this is not the first administration to introduce this notion of some sort of illegal activity on the part of the larger um, oil and gas uh, producers. It's sheer political folly. Um, 
if there were any evidence of this, true evidence of this, do you not suspect that we would all know this? Uh, we would. Uh, there's not because it's not happening. And even at that, it would be virtually impossible for all of these guys to get together in a room and collude to set crude oil prices. And so um, it, it's, uh, it's virtually impossible for me to imagine some scenario, some mechanism by which uh, these guys as market players could kind of uh, artificially manipulate uh, crude oil prices. And then it gets down to uh, uh, to gasoline. Uh, it's, it's just a very nefarious prospect. And it's it's really just kind of designed to shift the focus from what the administration is doing and try to kind of lay that blame potentially on somebody's shoulders uh, but theirs. That said, there is a global cartel in OPEC that cannot set prices but can significantly influence through supply and demand absolutely uh, uh and, and it's a thing that we tend to forget um bizarrely uh but we we really can't forget that we operate in a fundamentally different kind of market than they do uh, that is a for a for real cartel i mean that's what it is that is a group of oil producing countries colluding uh, to manipulate uh, markets and set prices at a level that they think is beneficial to them, whatever that may look like on a given day. It's not always beneficial for them in their minds to have high prices as high as they can be. Uh, they might want them to come down some so they can snatch some global market share, whatever the case may be. Uh, but yes, they do. And I've often heard this, frankly, as justification for why we should do things differently uh, here. Uh, and I mean, when you think about that, that's pure nonsense. If we operated our economy in that fashion, we would pretty much have to say, well, we're just not going to be a market economy at all. We're not going to be a free market, uh, totally free market capitalistic economy. So, you know, we should not fall into the trap of thinking, well, because there's this other sizable group of, uh, of, uh, producers out there that control the lion's share, or at least hold the lion's share of global production. Uh, and use that to manipulate markets and prices that we should fall into the trap of uh, somehow doing the same thing. Again, we've been extraordinarily well served uh, by, our market, uh, by our market functions here. And by this, I mean um, people who want us to respond to what OPEC is doing typically do so from the standpoint of the health of the producer uh, in the United States. And I want oil and gas producers to fare well in the United States but the focus always in an economy ought to be on the consumer and what it is that serves them uh, best and most effectively. And um, I think we can pretty easily demonstrate that our market economy does this, even in energy pricing, even in crude oil, regardless of uh, what that group uh, may or may not be doing over there. It doesn't always work out so well for them either. When we exploded domestic U.S. crude oil production from 2010 to 2014, and then even beyond that, uh, we actually really slapped OPEC around quite a lot then. They had no idea what to do with this explosion of global domestic crude oil production that was uh, entirely re the result of production growth within the United States. And so, again, we really backed OPEC into a corner back then. And guess what? We could do it again right now. Turn our guys loose, producing at $80 oil, $75 oil, whatever the market may be. Um, but I think that, that just underscores, your answer just underscores, I think, why one of the key reasons it's so important to have and promote domestic oil and gas production, right, is 
OPEC, uh, OPEC can set prices. They can influence the global markets. U.S. producers can't, but collectively as a country, we can do the same thing, right? And so being at the mercy of OPEC right now is a huge concern for a lot of people. Well, it is, and I, I don't know the extent to which we actually truly are at the mercy of OPEC uh, right now. I mean, um, <clears throat> if anything, uh, because they're, they, they have decided for their at least current purposes that keeping crude oil price level somewhat supported, that's not really hurting us. I mean, that's actually beneficial to us. If they wanted to, they could, uh, they could uh, you know, kind of turn on the on the taps and and uh, move more crude oil into the global marketplace and that would be beneficial for uh, consumers at least for some period of time um, but right now they seem to be comfortable with prices where they are and not a whole lot lower uh, so it kind of depends on your perspective I mean if we're looking at this from the standpoint of US oil and gas producers they're actually helping us right now not hurting us but the administration has clearly seen the political disadvantages of rising energy prices uh, uh, right now and certainly moving into an election year. Um, you know, most economists, certainly not me, you know, I don't think high prices are always a bad thing. Prices to me always mean that the market is acting to accomplish something. Uh, if you don't have government involvement and if you just have a freely functioning market, High prices are designed to do two things at the same time, stimulate additional production and then quell uh, consumption. And so, uh, so high prices uh, serve a purpose. And it's often said that the cure for, uh, for high prices is uh, you know high prices because it brings additional production into the marketplace. And so why would this not be happening now? Well, I, I think that it may in some respects um, and uh, and listen, just to be fair, as as an economist and not kind of a political actor, and just to kind of remove some of the political noise from this, there's no doubt about the fact that COVID was going to, uh, in a hurry, which it did, tank global energy demand and in a really short period of time. And this means there had to be a price response, and in response to that, there had to be a production response. And so we sidelined a lot of production capacity in 2020, uh, and we're kind of still detangling from the COVID economy now. What we should not be doing, however, from a policy standpoint, is making this worse by artificially restricting supply into the United States uh, or by uh, disincentivizing producers or making it more difficult or more expensive for U.S. producers to grow domestic uh, crude oil production in response to these higher prices. And this, uh, I'm afraid, is exactly what we're doing. We could simply let markets be working, uh, but what are we doing? Well, we're we are um, we are cutting into production on U.S. federal lands, going into COVID and probably even beyond. Twenty to twenty-five percent, probably closer to twenty-five percent of all U.S. crude oil production came from federal property, federal lands and waters, and so we. We put a moratorium on this, we did, the administration did, early on, and now they're proposing to make this more restrictive and more expensive, uh, which will only have um, the result of diminishing, of bringing down what crude oil production from federal property otherwise would be. Throw on top of that, 
decommissioning the Keystone XL pipeline, which brings in a much needed grade of crude oil from our most reliable foreign, quote unquote, supplier, which is Canada. Um, and uh, there's another supply restriction. Um, and then you throw in um, uh, really uh, increasingly burdensome regulation on the oil and gas industry uh, from an environmental standpoint um, uh, through regulation with the EPA and other agencies. And now this thing, which is not yet passed, but it's up for consideration in the Congress, this methane tax. Um, all of these things have the ultimate outcome of restricting U.S. supply at a time when we need it most. So they recently had a release of 50 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as some sort of attempt to influence prices. How does 50 million barrels compare to what the actual U.S. and global demand is and what kind of impact, if any, does that actually have on affecting prices right now? Well, first, let's just acknowledge that the administration has um, probably accidentally revealed their understanding of what additional supply actually means. Whether it turns out to be effective or not, which it will not, they at least understand that adding supply uh, to the U.S. marketplace would, be, would potentially bring prices down to consumers. So yay for them for that. Um, however, and it's not 50 million barrels, it's an announced 50 million barrels over some period of time. Only about 32 million barrels of that 50 million is going to be in the near term here and the rest of it's over the next couple of years. And this is actually sort of a budget thing, you know, this is a revenue item for them. They purchased that, a lot of that oil when it was less expensive and now they will sell it at higher prices and the government will bank a little bit of money. So that last 18 million barrels is really supposed to be for that purpose. But even at best, um, broadly speaking, we consume in the U.S. about 20 million barrels of crude oil a day. We turn it into refined products, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and then plastics and all the fantastic things that, uh, that are the makeup, the foundation of our economy. All of that amounts to about 20 million barrels a day. So that's some pretty easy math right there. At 50 million, we've got about two and a half days of consumption. At, um, at, uh, at 32 million, uh, you know, one and a half, a little over one and a half days of, of U.S. consumption. It's just folly to think that this has any sort of, uh, of impact at all. So um, given the fact that e e even, uh, <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to be an economist, you don't have to be a math whiz to understand that this is a drop in the bucket or a drop in the barrel um, in terms of any impact at all on supply. So what, what's its purpose? Purely political, obviously, to be seen as doing something. Uh, and again, to try to take the, um, uh, the, uh, try to take the pressure off uh, of the current situation, some portion of which is purely self-inflicted. So that's just naked politics. It's not the first time we've seen this sort of thing either. You know, I have been around long enough to have witnessed all of these um, uh, bizarre occurrences in the past. Uh, uh, but the Strategic Petroleum Reserve does not exist to manipulate markets um, to solve political problems for whoever may be in power. It was created at a time when we were much, much, much more dependent on crude oil from foreign sources 
to protect us from a major league supply shock that may have occurred in some other part of the world. And I suppose now one could argue that given the fact that we have grown domestic production so much and our reliance on foreign producers is uh, is so greatly diminished whether we even need that thing or not. But uh, uh, we'll probably keep it um, so people can continue to do can continue to do with it, this with it. But the math is just not there. Uh, there is no, uh, there's no impact, measurable impact to consumers on lowering prices for gasoline or anything else. But what we have seen, though, in the past couple of days is this, this new Omicron variant of, of COVID. Now, it has affected some prices because we're potentially looking at um, staring down of um, maybe needing less demand, right? So that's why we've seen some prices going down in that regard. Am I correct on that? You're quite correct on that. Um, uh, we saw declining prices in the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, relative to the day before Thanksgiving. Um, uh, but again, don't be fooled into thinking this has anything to do with that announced 50 million barrels. This this is a kind of a global demand concern related to COVID uh, and, the, and the, you know, kind of growing knowledge of the new variant and, and all of that. Um, my suspicion is that it's kind of going to be a market yawner um, and uh, we'll kind of be back to uh, to where we were, I, I hope this is the case, simply because I don't want to see our economy in the U.S. I don't want to see the global economy just enslaved uh, to this thing from, from now on. And uh, so the reason energy demand has, it hasn't in every measure gotten back to where it was pre-COVID, but it's very close and it's certainly very close uh, in some elements of this, you might imagine that jet fuel, for example, still has a ways to go to get back to its pre-COVID demand. Gasoline's getting very close, um, and in total, it's getting pretty close. And the reason is that people have just um, have have um, have begun to get back to living, you know, fairly normal lives um, and lives that uh, that demand energy to power. Uh, that means, however, that we're going to continue to have. I, th I think these uh, supply problems, I mean, we, we will have some operators in the U.S. responding to these higher prices. Um, they might be doing so in kind of muted fashion, however, because they don't really know what's coming next from their own government. Uh, they don't know what the regulatory impact on their costs are likely to be. And particularly if you're operating in a state or operating on federal lands, that's really an open question at this point. So, Carr, break out your crystal ball for 2022. I have two questions for you. The first is, do you think COVID or policymaking or both will dominate what prices for oil do in 22? And follow that up with what you think or what direction you think prices are going to go throughout next year. Policy is going to have a lot to do with the nature of production in the United States. And it will have something to do with pricing without a doubt. I mean, even to the extent that governments want to wade into markets and try to get them to do one thing or another, uh, it's still market uh, fundamentals, the global supply and demand that kind of rule the roost in terms of setting prices. And so it's conceivable that COVID as a, as a, as a, global phenomenon, decreasing in impact, I hope. Although, you know, we're going to deal with these new variants. Um, 
so if the if the two choices are COVID and policy, uh, probably COVID because that stands to have a greater impact globally uh, than you know what happens uh, domestically. Uh, policy, you know, will have some impact, I think, and it is having an impact on uh, keeping domestic production uh, dampened to the extent that it otherwise might be the case. But, uh, but that just means that, um, that markets are going to push prices higher. If the market senses that global demand is higher relative to available global supply, prices are going to go up. And those who still can, like those of us in the state of Texas, uh, are going to drill for crude oil. Our rig count's not as high as it used to be, uh, but it's climbing slowly and steadily. And just think about this. What was the first response to operators immediately after COVID? Was well, just to restart the wells that they shut in. The second response appears to be uh, completing wells that were drilled but never completed, this so-called famous uh, duck, uh, D-U-C, the duck inventory drill but uncompleted wells. Well, that duck inventory has come down pretty spectacularly. We're only going to be able to ride that train for so long, and then people are going to start drilling wells again because there's no set of circumstances under which $70 or $80 oil is going to keep operators on the sideline forever. Um, so they are going to produce, and this will raise the rig count, and this will ultimately raise production. But it could go higher if we would just kind of get these artificial policy impediments um, uh, out of the way. And I don't care about OPEC. They're going to do what they do. Uh, we need to just do what we do, let markets work, and let people do uh, what they're going to do in the United States. Um, and in terms of prices, man, even even the best energy economists, we're all terrible price predictors. I've got a friend who likes to say, you know, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who know what crude oil prices are going to be in the future. And, oh wait, there's only one kind of person in this world, though that person who doesn't know what crude oil prices are going to be in the future, but they're kind of lining up to go higher than they are now. You're seeing a lot of chatter out there about, you know, maybe $100 oil, maybe $150 oil. Well, we've seen these kind of fantastic proclamations before uh, as well. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, typically what happens is people respond to rising prices and it keeps them from going higher. I hope that we are able to do this uh, uh, going forward, uh, again, led by uh, led by the state of Texas. Uh, crude oil prices, as we sit here right now, are not nearly the highest that they've ever been. Gasoline prices in Texas are not nearly the highest that they've ever been. They are, however, in some other parts of the country. Well, Carr, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know that we, we could talk for hours and hours more. Carr, thank you again for, for joining us. Um, tell us, how can we find uh, what you're doing over at the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers? Give us a little plug um, for the Alliance and, and how we can get more information and, and, and where are you publishing stuff? Absolutely. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers is a statewide upstream or exploration production oil and gas trade association. So we represent the exploration and production end of the business. We've got it all in Texas. We've got production. We've got midstream pipelines processing. We've got downstream refining, turning all of this into fantastic products that power our uh, economy. But we represent the production side of that, crude oil and natural gas. Uh, moreover, we represent principally what we refer to as independent operators, which are people who produce oil and gas, but then just sell it. They don't themselves turn it into a refined product. They're typically not transporting it or 
or processing it and in a midstream sense they're bringing it to the surface and selling it and uh, there are some even very large uh, ind so-called independents um, but we also represent uh, to a greater degree than anyone else uh, the small independent producer in the state of Texas these are fantastic companies uh, there everybody's heard the names of a number of great big oil and gas companies we represent fabulous operating companies whose names nobody's ever heard before um, I think truly we are uh, doing uh, the work that has to be done to protect the industry uh, from uh, you know proposed bad policies in Austin and those do happen I mean every session there's a raft of bad policies that are proposed that we have to fight against uh, but DC is the true threat right now and we're very active in DC as well well, thank you so much, Carr, and, and I'm happy to be on the board of that organization as well. Um, so thanks again for joining us, and I'm sure we will be hearing from you soon. Thank you, friends. The pleasure was mine. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but I want to tell you about our sponsor, SPL. They offer end-to-end -end testing, measurement, and reporting solutions across the entire hydrocarbon value chain through cutting-edge technology, meticulous processes, and highly qualified personnel. SPL offers insights you can trust and act on. Check them out online at spl-inc.com. That's spl-inc.com. And now... Back to the show. Well, that's it for the Energy Strong podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you also to our sponsors, Bulwark FR and SPL, for helping present this podcast. We couldn't do this without you guys. And thank you to Andrew Parker and Kat Galloway as my co-hosts. It's always fun talking about energy and environment with you guys. As always, we'll be posting some information in the show notes to help you get in touch with our guest and the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers so that you can learn more about them. As a reminder, it really helps us out if you can subscribe to the podcast, share it with friends, and leave a rating and a review wherever you listen. We are on all of the major podcast apps, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as on YouTube now. So wherever you choose to listen, make sure that you leave a rating and a review. Also, we are still looking for additional sponsors for the podcast. Remember that any sponsorships that we gain here are going to be going to a nonprofit partner, which in Q4 of 2021 was the Porter Billups Leadership Academy. We will be selecting a new nonprofit partner for Q1 of 22. So if you have a nonprofit that you want to support or have anybody that you would like to reach out to us about being involved in the podcast, please uh, feel free to shoot us a note on the Energy Strong website, energystrong.com, or on the Energy Strong LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you all next time.